The reading today is John chapter 13, verse 1 to 17, which is page 1081 in the Blue Church Bibles. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean. Though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Welcome to Highfields, welcome to Cardiff, you're new to both church and city, it's great to have you here. And uh, you've come to a a wonderful city if you have uh, moved here recently for work or study and... uh, uh, my family and I have been here for nearly 10 years and we love it and I'm sure you'll love it as well. Um, also just to say, if you are new and would like to find out more information about the church, we've got these green and white welcome cards which are around the place and uh, if you uh, fill that in and give it to me or leave it down uh, with someone on the welcome desk as you uh, leave, that would be great, we can keep in touch that way. Also now is the time to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. And uh, we're looking at the first 17 verses. Maybe you don't have a Bible, but uh, if you don't, and if you don't actually own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of these and uh, write your name in it, and that's yours. But if you, uh, if you just left it at home, that's absolutely fine. You can uh, hunt one of these out, and uh, uh, page 1081, John 13, really worthwhile having open in front of you, either paper version, or if you've got an um, uh, iPad or something like that to just keep track of what's going on, that would be excellent. And uh, that's where we're spending our time. I should introduce myself. My name's Dave Gobbett. I'm one of the pastors here at Highfields. Love uh, getting to know uh, folks here at the church. So do come and say hi at the end if you, uh, if you can. I have an iron will. And all of my life has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. 
I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Now, that's not a confessional entry from my own journal back at home. Uh, It is a quote from Madonna, the now ageing pop icon uh, in a 1991 article in Vanity Fair magazine. And very honest, isn't she? You don't need to be an ageing pop icon like Madonna to know the drive to prove yourself in our work, our subject, our friendship groups, maybe our relationships, our culture says you're only valuable if you prove yourself. You're only valuable if you fit in. You're only valuable if you're funny. You're only valuable if you're fit. You're only valuable if you're fashionable. You're only valuable if you're fast. You're only valuable if you're confident. You're only valuable if you can hold an interesting conversation after the church service and people don't wander away looking a bit bored. It's very easy to get sucked into that way of thinking. It's incredibly easy, I hate to say it, to be sucked into that way of thinking in relation to how we view God and how we think God views us. I'm only valuable to God, if ever I am valuable to God, if I don't have any doubts or I'm really secure in my relationship with God all the time. That's maybe when I'm valuable to God. I'm only valuable to God if I have certain gifts that I can use. I'm only valuable to God if I'm an extrovert and I can do all these great things for God in front of everybody. Or I'm only valuable to God if I'm an introvert and I can use these great gifts for God. I'm only valuable to God if I haven't sinned or haven't sinned in this particular way and I've done all this great stuff for him. Or maybe I'm only valuable to God if I haven't sinned for a long time in that particular way and then I'm valuable to him, otherwise not so much. And uh, if I can't offer anything to him, well he says, well thanks but no thanks and tries to move on as quickly as he can. Now, of course, I doubt very many of us would verbalise those things in that kind of way, but I think many of us are, if we're honest, crippled deep down with a need to prove ourselves, either socially or spiritually. And uh, if you're willing to admit that there's even a hint that that may be you in some way or other, then I'm thrilled you here because I think John 13 has a great word for you. Not my word, but God's word. And I hope and pray it would be helpful for you. Uh, over the autumn mornings here at Highfields, uh, up until Christmas and then into the new year, we're working through John's Gospel, chapters 13 to 17. It's a wonderful uh, part of the Bible to study. It deals with life uh, today in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. And I love these chapters. They give us a beautiful insight into what discipleship in the 21st century might look like. Now, it may be that you're here and you're not yet a Christian believer. I imagine there's a whole range of us here. Some who maybe have been following Jesus for many, many years. Uh, some many weeks. Maybe you've just become a Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not sure. You are very, very welcome. And if you know you're here today and you're not a Christian, 
I think this would be a really interesting uh, session for you to listen in on what it might look like for you to become a Christian. And I uh, hope and pray very much that you would consider becoming a Christian uh, today or sometime this term. But before we dive into our passage, we need to put uh, the text into context. Uh, If you rip a text away from a context, you're left with a con, as uh, you may have heard before. Uh, Well, we don't want to be conned as we study the Bible, so we need to get into context. And the big um, summary that really helps us understand John's gospel, wherever we are, is John 20, verses 30 and 31. This is the key that unlocks the whole book for us. We've seen this before when we've studied here at church. And let me remind you of what we see. So this is John 20, 30 and 31. John's gospel written by uh, a friend of Jesus, uh, John. And this is what John writes. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, if you've read John's Gospel, it's one of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and there are different things in different Gospels. And sometimes people think, crumbs, that's contradictory. Does it? Did he do this or did he not do this? It's not said in all of them. Don't worry about that. John makes it really clear that what John wrote about in John's Gospel is, some of this is unique to John, like John chapter 13 to 17. And John shows what he included quite deliberately. He's an eyewitness to these things, so we can totally trust it. But he chose what he included to communicate three great truths, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we can have life in his name. But what's so wonderful about those verses, John 20, 31 and 31, is not only are they a summary of the book of John, they are the contents page of the book of John as well. Let me explain. So you have chapter one of John's gospel, which is a kind of introductory chapter, meeting all the key runners and rides in the book. And then chapters two to four really could be summarised by the phrase that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised saviour king who has come to bring new wonderful things into a world of confusion. It's bracketed by two miracles in Cain in Galilee. He turns water into wine in chapter 2. He heals the physician's son in chapter 4. And in the middle of those chapters, he demonstrates that he has come to kind of turn the tables over on our preconceptions of what God and religion are all about. Here is the promised saviour king who has come to rescue and bring joy to the world. That's what uh, John chapters 2 to 4 are all about. Then John chapters 5 to 10 are all about how Jesus is the son of God. And I can make that case because uh, at the start of the section, John 5, and at the end of the section, John 9, Jesus does a miracle that only God could do. He heals someone on the Sabbath. And uh, the Pharisees can't stand the fact, not that he's healed someone, but that he had the kind of the, the cheek to do it on the Sabbath, the Jewish holy day. Only God does those kind of things. And Jesus says, you're right, I've done these kinds of things, claiming to be God. And in the middle of those chapters, you get loads of famous I am phrases that Jesus says. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I'm the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am. These amazing claims to deity. Jesus is the son of God. That's the next big section in John. And then the last big section of John, guess what? It's all about how by believing in Jesus, we would have life in his name. And uh, I get that because at the start of that section, John 11, and at the end of that section, John 21, Jesus does miracles that bring life to the dead. John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. John 20 and 21, he himself rises from the dead. He is the one who brings life. And uh, it's that big section that we're studying at the moment. And that big section, John 11 to 21, can be broken down into three sections. 
Section 1 is 11 to 12, uh, which we saw in the summer when he uh, healed, or so he raised Lazarus from the dead. He talks about how he's going to die and rise again. Then uh, John 13 to 17, what we call the upper room discourse, the discussion, the teaching in the upper room. And then John 18 to 21, the passion of the Christ, which uh, talks about Jesus' betrayal, his trial, his death, and his resurrection uh, at the end of the book. And it's that centre section that we're looking at, uh, John uh, 13 to 17. And what does it mean to have life in his name? Now, this upper room discourse, this discussion that takes place in the upper room, is the longest, largest teaching block of Jesus in all of John's Gospel. So we're listening into the words of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, describing to us, what does it mean to live for you, Jesus? Now, um, these verses actually don't use the phrase upper room. If you want to hear that, that's in uh, Mark verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 15, where Jesus uh, tells the disciples uh, to go and speak to somebody and ask them for an upper room where we can meet. And uh, that's what is going on. And in that context, this is where he does all this teaching. And the big focus of our study today, which is verses 1 to 17, is how can someone have a relationship with Jesus? And what might that look like? How can you, maybe? Maybe you don't even have one. You've been brought along by a friend. It's lovely you're here. Or mum and dad said, get yourself to church when you go off to uni. And you've done it. And uh, you don't yet know Jesus. How might you know Jesus? That's really what we're going to be thinking about today. And uh, it's a famous passage, verses 1 to 17. It's the famous foot washing of Jesus. It's a well-known Bible story. It's uh, in lots of child story Bibles, uh, and uh, maybe you studied it at uh, school, perhaps. And uh, it's obviously a great picture of Jesus' sacrificial love and this example of humility and service that he shows to his followers. But I think there are some clues in John 13, 1 to 17, that say it's more than just a great example of sacrificial service. I think it is that. I think it's more than that. And uh, there were four clues that, as I was studying it, that jumped out to me to make me say, huh, there's maybe more going on in this passage than perhaps what uh, you might have heard at, uh, at, uh, in RS at school or in Sunday school, perhaps. More than just an example um, to follow. Here's the first clue, what we might um, identify as the festival. So if you look down in your Bibles, uh, John 13, verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival. So Jesus happened to do this this, um, foot-washing experience with his disciples at the time of the Passover festival. Now, what was the Passover festival? It was an annual festival in the Jewish calendar where uh, Jewish believers remembered God's great act of salvation. Hundreds of years previously, they had been slaves in Egypt and God powerfully rescued them out of Egypt at the Exodus by inviting anyone who painted blood on the door frame of the house that instead of the angel of death uh, destroying all in the house, which is what he was going to do with the Egyptians who had uh, enslaved the, the, the Israelites, the angel of death passed over those houses and the people were able to be set free. And thereafter, every year, the people were commanded to remember and to gather together, a bit like we do um, as we share in the bread and wine a bit later on in our service, to gather together and to remember, God, thank you so much for passing over me and not judging me, but saving me instead. And they used to eat lamb and they used to have bitter herbs and they had bread and they had wine. And that was the Passover. It was a, a reminder of God's great act of salvation. So that's going on already. 
And Jesus could have washed the disciples' feet any time, but he chose to do it then, when they're already thinking about God's powerful act of salvation. Second clue is the issue of timing. And the big theme of timing is massive in the book of John. Uh, we saw this earlier on in the summer. Let me remind you of some of these, uh, these references. Again, let me read from John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast or festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. The hour had come. This is the climax of Jesus' mission. He's uh, come from the Father. He's going back to the Father. And the first half of the book of John, so John chapters 1 to 11, his hour has not yet come. And he says that very clearly. Here's uh, Jesus speaking to his mother during the time when he eventually uh, turns water into wine in John chapter 2, verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. This is not why I'm here. My hour has not yet come, he says in John 2. He says the same thing in John uh, chapter 7. Uh, There he delays going to the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was another Jewish festival. And his disciples wonder why. And he says this, you go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. His hour has not yet come. His time has not yet come. So he's, he's thinking there's a clock ticking down. Tick, 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 tick. And he's, it's not there yet. He's not got to it. Tick, tick, tick. And all the way through John's Gospel, the clock, the countdown is ticking down, down, down. And then you get to chapter 12. So if you've got John 13 open, you move your eyes over to John 12. And in John chapter 12, this is when uh, we saw this in the summer, the big transition in the book of John occurs. And John chapter 12, verse 23 says the following. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then down in verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So the idea is that now Jesus is saying the click, tick, 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 it's here. The bell is ringing. It's time to go. I'm now going to enact my great salvation plan. Now is the time, the moment has come. So when we get to chapter 13, again, look down in chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come. Our antenna should, go, should pop up. That's it. Something very important is about to happen here that he's been waiting for and has now arrived. That's the, the second clue. That there's more going on than simply Jesus washing his disciples' feet to demonstrate his love. Okay, that's the second clue. Third clue is the love point. Listen to how uh, Jesus describes what's going on. It was just before, or John describes this, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's quite an intriguing phrase. He loved them to the end. Now, some Bible versions, maybe your version, uh, older NIV, describes it as being he wanted to show the full extent of his love. Quite interesting, isn't it? Because I'm sure those disciples who've been walking on a hot, dusty road with their, uh, uh, their flip-flops and their dusty feet, you know, to have someone wash their feet, that would have been very nice. Is that really Jesus showing the full extent of his love by washing their feet? Or loving them to the end by washing their feet? That seems to kind of overstate a little bit that one activity, simply washing their feet. Is it really that big a deal? And I think John would say, yes, it is that big a deal. And then the fourth clue, and then we will dive into the passage and just kind of tease out a couple of lessons, is there's an enigmatic line that Jesus says to Peter, a little promise he makes in verse 7. 
Peter has no idea what's going on. He's completely thrown. And uh, Jesus says in verse 7, You do not realise now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Another subtle hint that there is more going on than simply an exercise in someone being humble and demonstrating what it might be to to be humble as well. And uh, later you'll understand, I think that's referring to later when Jesus dies on the cross and rise again, then everything would become clear. So there's more going on than simply an example. What is going on? Well, let's dive into the passage now proper and uh, we're going to see two key lessons And just to warn you, the first point is by far the biggest lesson because it's the most important thing for us to to note from today's study. And that is, Jesus must serve you first if you're going to belong to him. Jesus must first serve you if you are going to belong to him. And that is in verses 1 to 11. Now, one of the reasons I love John 13 so much is it turns many of our assumptions about Jesus and a potential relationship with him on their head. As we said at the start, if maybe you call yourself a Christian, maybe you've been around Christian things for a while. Now, if someone says to you, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? And I hope if you're a student and uh, you are someone who calls yourself a Christian, my piece of advice would be, let your friends know early on that you're a Christian. Um, sometimes we try and keep that undercover for weeks and weeks and then we finally kind of have the courage to pop the flag up and finally admit it. My advice would be just get it out early on that you are a Christian. Down the line we can explain what it means, but say the question comes, so what does it actually mean for you to be a Christian? I wonder how you'd answer. You just stop and think, well, what does it mean for me to be a Christian? Maybe for you, you think it means me uh, reading my Bible for Jesus or praying to him, and that's what it means. It means me praying for him, or it means me uh, giving to charities for Jesus, or I, uh, I go to church for Jesus, or I, I lead in a small group, or I read the Bible with my uh, housemates for Jesus, or I help lead the Christian union for, for Jesus. And, and those things are what it means for me to be a Christian, or I, I serve Jesus by talking about him to my friends, and that's what it means for me to be a Christian. And by the way, they're all excellent things, they're great things. But we've got to be careful. Because if you listen carefully to the list of things I've said, I've just described a whole lot of things that we do. I do this, I do that, I do the other, I do Bible, I do prayer, I do church, I do leadership, I do small groups, I read the Bible with other people. I do it, I do it, I do it, I do it, full stop. Do they describe your relationship with Jesus? Or do they define your relationship with Jesus? This is what it is. If that's the case, be careful. Because if you're not careful, you're finding yourself thinking, I'm forever needing to prove myself. I've got to do this. I've got to do Have I done enough for Jesus? John 13 says, you've got it all the wrong way around. Jesus must first serve you if you're going to belong to him. See, the heart of Christianity is not the, the two-letter word, do, do this, do that, do the other. The heart of Christianity is the four-letter word, done. He has done it all. He has died on the cross to pay for our sins. It's what he does for you that is the heart of it all. So here's John 13. Again, verse 1. We're parking here because it's so important. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power 
and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I have to say, that paragraph, verses 2 to 5, I think is one of the most extraordinary paragraphs in the whole of the New Testament. Big claim, let me tell you why I think this is the case, okay? Satan is on the loose. He's right under Jesus' nose. He's prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. That's Satan, okay? Then there's Jesus. Jesus knows that the Father's put all things under his power. He is all-powerful. He is the one who holds the oceans in his hand, has numbered every grain of sand. He owns it all. He, he's in sovereign control of it all. He knows that he has come from the Father and is returning to the Father. He knows his, his power. He knows his identity. He knows his mission. And he's got Satan there under his nose. It's like having, you know, being the most powerful person in the world. And then Vladimir Putin is just sitting there ready to be like, taken down. Jesus could have sent a thunderbolt and smashed Satan into smithereens right then and there. He, he knew the power he's got. He knows his mission. He's come to destroy Satan. Like, he could just like wiped him out. Wouldn't you have done that? Maybe he could have thrown some orders around so that people started serving him and doing all this and that for him. What does he do? He washes his disciples' feet. It's an extraordinary paragraph. And there is a, an extraordinary word in the middle of this extraordinary paragraph. Do you know what the, the most stunning word for me in the whole of that paragraph? Just run your eye over that paragraph. And there's one little word. The first word of verse 4. just blows my mind. I've underlined it so many times it's almost gone through to the back of the Bible. It's just like, this is incredible. That word surely is a typo, because if I was writing John's Gospel, I would have put however. I would have put however. Jesus knew that God had given him all power. He's come from God. He's going to God. However, he took off his uh, cloak, put on a towel, and washed his disciples' feet. Yeah, that, that's what we think. No, it's not that. That is not what the Holy Spirit has inspired John to write, describing what has taken place. The Holy Spirit inspires John to write that knowing, knowing the power at Jesus' disposal, knowing his identity, knowing his amazing mission, so, precisely because he's that kind of God, friends. So, he goes onto his hands and knees and washes the disciples' feet. This is our God, the servant king. We're going we're gonna to sing about that in a little while. That just blows my mind. <laughs> what kind of God do you believe in, friends? Maybe you're here and you, you're not yet a Christian and maybe you've decided not to be a Christian because of various things. Here's Ricky Gervais, famous celebrity atheist a few years ago. Quotes, since the beginning of recorded history, historians have catalogued 2,870 deities. So next time someone tells me they believe in God, I'll say, oh, which one? Zeus? Hades? Jupiter? Mars? Odin? Thor? Krishna? Vishnu? Ra? If they say, oh, just God, I only believe in the one God, I'll point out that they're nearly as atheist as me. I don't believe in 2,870 gods. They don't believe in 2,869 gods. And in typical Gervais uh, way, I think he's actually onto something there. The question is not, do you believe in God? It's which God do you believe in? 
Which God do you believe in? And at Highfields, we worship a God who did not come to be served, but to serve. This is precisely the kind of God he is. He knew he didn't need to prove himself, anything about his identity. He knew full well he was totally secure in who he was. He knew full well that the, the way that he would crush Satan is by being lifted up and being hung on a cross. And that would be the means of drawing all people to himself, men and women, boys and girls. He says that in John 12, 31. That is the way Jesus reveals his love. He comes in humility, he comes in service. Wow, what a, what a king. But Peter won't be doing with it. So look down in verse uh, 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You can almost imagine, can't you? Jesus on his knees going along, washing the disciples' feet, gets to Peter, and Peter's like, nope, I'm not, no, get off, you're not doing me, move on. Uh, Jesus is like, excuse me, no, um, I am going to wash your feet. And then, and then uh, he doubles down, no, verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. You're not doing that, Jesus. And then, he, but Jesus has said, you do not realise what I'm doing, but later you will understand no I can't cope with it and then he says look end of verse 8 unless I wash you you have no part with me what's Jesus saying I think there are two lessons we're going to draw very briefly from here you need to be cleansed by Jesus unless I wash you you will have no part with me you've got to be cleansed by Jesus the key thing is that word unless which again, I think, gives us evidence that there is much more than simply a foot washing going on here. I'm convinced that this foot washing that Jesus does with his disciples is an enacted parable of the cross. We've been singing about the cross uh, today. I think this is a parable, a visual aid of what the cross is going to be like. It unmistakably points to the fact that you need absolutely to be washed by Jesus. The Lamb of God, God unless he's, he's, he's cleansed you by his blood, we've sung about the precious blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus will, will wash you clean. No good that you have done will get you clean. Unless you're washed by his blood, you can have no part with him. The only hope any of us we can have of salvation is by humbly admitting we need cleansing. A bit like the Old Testament General Naaman. If you know your Old Testament, that Naaman, he had leprosy. He's got to be washed clean. Unless you wash yourself, unless you get washed, you're lost. Friends, we're dirty. We are really, really, really dirty. We've got to come to Jesus and he has got to wash us clean. It's not what you do for Jesus. All these contributions, please don't think it's what you do for him. It's what he does for you, what he offers you. It's not do this, do that, do that. No, Jesus must serve you, first of all, if ever you're going to belong to him. Has that happened? Have you received that? Have you received that washing? Peter can't get it. He still thinks he needs to do something. He's, he, he, he's trying to defend himself. He needs to be washed. That's the first little lesson, application. You need to be washed. You need to be cleansed by Jesus. And it's enough to be cleansed by Jesus. That's the other little lesson I think I wanted to draw here, verses 9 to 11. This is great. Verses 6 to 8 describe the necessity of Jesus' death for us here. It's describing the sufficiency. Peter is characteristically enthusiastic. He is the tigger of the, the disciples. I identify well with uh, Peter. And uh, he says, then, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands as well. He's kind of like, let me just jump into a lake. Wash me all, Jesus. 
If, if getting to be with you is what is needed, then do the whole of me. Give me a full dunking. And Jesus says, verse 10, kind of enigmatically, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Now, slightly complicated. I think what Jesus is saying is the following. He's saying once you have been washed by Jesus, which happens when you become a Christian, when you trust in his death on the cross, you say, sorry for what I've done. Thank you for what you've done. Please wash me clean. He does wash you clean. He cleanses you by his blood. And uh, that blood can take away the, the foulest stain, the guilt. You hear, you're like, I failed in so many ways. That can wash you clean. You've already had a bath in his grace, so to speak. That's what happens when you become a Christian. Completely bathed in his grace, washed, completely done away with. Once cleansed, always cleansed, so to speak. Well, when those past sins are completely and utterly gone, forever dissolved, disappearing, well, that means that for your ongoing sins in your Christian life, we do sin in our ongoing Christian lives, I have to say that to you, if you, if you are not yet a Christian, it's not that Christians are perfect, we do still sin, but when you sin in your Christian life, it's not as if you get reset back to pre-you ever having been forgiven, that's not the case. You, know, you, you simply need a foot washing now. You simply need to just go back to the cross. You don't need to be kind of plunged in a bath again because you, you've been washed clean that time. You just need to come back and say, sorry, love, what I've done. He'll forgive you every time. But you're not kind of kicked out the moment you fail, which is so important. It's so important because maybe you're here today. You think, Dave, you can say that, but you don't know what I've done. Even since being a Christian, even since being a Christian leader, I failed the thing I said. The thing I did, even the thought I had, the way I treated someone who I should have been so much better to, and I failed them. If only you saw the skeletons in the closet come out. We've seen lots of skeletons in the closet, haven't we, in the last week? Skeletons in the closet. If only you saw that, you would just march me out. I'd be disqualified, I'd be shamed, I'd be cancelled, I'm out of there. Friend, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you've known his forgiveness, if you've known his grace, you have been washed. You've been cleansed. You've had a bath in his grace. It is enough to be cleansed by Jesus. Do you believe that? Of course that doesn't mean we soft-pedal sin. Of course it doesn't mean we don't pretend it's real, we deal with it whenever it happens. But it does mean that God hasn't set up the Christian life like an enormous great game of snakes and ladders, where he's just trying to catch you out. And you think you're doing well and you're kind of going on in your Christian life, you're going on and you're going on and then you get to square 87 and you sin and and you slide back down to square 14. I think they're the key numbers in question, never hit 87 and 14. And you're, you're gone, you think, I've blown it. There's more grace. There's more grace for you, friends. It's enough to be cleansed by Jesus. Well, we've seen our first point. As I said to you, that's the big one. And we're, we're almost done. But I do need to land the plane. And here, this is our second point. Jesus must first serve you if you're going to belong to him. Secondly, if you do belong to Jesus, get used to serving others. And we've got to land here. Because this is where Jesus does. And maybe that's what you assumed we were going to be thinking about the whole time. But we need to get that first point crystal clear. The foot washing primarily is a picture of the cross. But it's not only a picture of the cross. I think it's an example for each one. Verse 12, when he had finished uh, washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
I set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. The point is not a command to literally wash each other's feet, though of course if you live in a hot Middle Eastern country or in the first century where that was a very clear demonstration of love for someone, go for it. I think the key thing is what we'll see next time from chapter 13, verse 34. Have a look down or flick over a page. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not about washing feet, but about serving other people, loving other people. Do as I do. Do as I've served you, follow the servant king as I've served you. If Jesus is the first to be last, then you're to be next in line, is what Jesus is saying. But friends, so often, I think, we want Jesus to do all the dying. You do all the dying, you do all the sacrificing, you do all the giving stuff up, Jesus, and I'll happily receive the blessing. No. If he's died for you, you follow him and you give yourself up for others. Humility. Servant-heartedness, love. They're three words, by the way. I don't know whether they would get into the top ten words that your friends describe you with. Humility, servant-heartedness, love. I don't know whether they would get into the top ten words of what people describe Highfield's church like. Humility, servant-heartedness, love. Wow. What a difference to Cardiff we would be if that was us. Humility, servant-heartedness, love. That's my prayer. If you do belong to Jesus, get used to serving others. It's so easy, isn't it? For our discipleship and our service to be much more characterised by pride and self-serving behaviour and a kind of rivalry that just jostles for acclaim to look a bit more impressive than we are. I uh, read a very powerful quote from Derek Tidball's commentary on Leviticus. Let me give it to you. The danger of much of today's Christianity, with its concentration on major Christian gatherings and celebrity speakers, is that it sets wrong aspirations before emerging Christian leaders. Some see the glamour and glitz and want to have a prominent place in the celebration or on the big stage. They do not see and fail to grasp the significance of serving God faithfully in the unremarkable, small and routine work that characterises most service for God. That is a powerful word. Let's not overlook that serving God, serving his people, is often in small, unremarkable, routine ways. It is exactly the kind of ministry that the servant king longs to see in us. So as we close, let's pray that the Lord would wean ourselves off our obsessions from the spectacular and the impressive and the high numbers and the flashy that makes us look good and us look great as we seek to serve him. Because in all our jostling of self-promotion up the escalator of Christian life and ministry, we've got to be very careful that we don't miss Jesus as he travels on the way down. Let's have a moment of quietness.
and then I'll pray. And as we prepare to pray, we'll be shortly sharing in the bread and wine of the Lord's table. So can I invite those who are helping serve communion to come and sit at the front, please. Lord Jesus Christ, we are humbled by your service. We're humbled by your sacrifice. We're humbled that your blood can wash the foulest clean. Any guilt, any shame, any regret. Things in our past, things even in our present that we feel so defiled by, Lord, your blood can wash us clean. Thank you for the freedom that knowing you brings us. Please help us to look to you and trust in you and come back to you for cleansing. And having received your cleansing, Lord Jesus, we pray, please, would we be those that serve others, that pour ourselves out in service and love as you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.